Our scripture passage today is Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 26. If you want to turn there, you may. Again, next week is the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that next week. So this week we'll read about the Lord's Supper and the first time it was instituted by Christ. Here now, Mark 14, verses 22 to 26. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let me ask the the Spirit to guide us here. Oh, Lord, we need your Spirit. These words are clear, but we know, Lord, that your words will only sink into our minds if your Spirit has loosened our hard hearts and softened us in such a way that we may receive it. We pray now that these words would be received through your Spirit. Thank you for his work. We pray in your Son's name. Amen. You know, many of you are quite aware that this is Memorial Day weekend, which simply means that tomorrow is Memorial Day. You can see evidence of that by the fact that I have more family members with me today than average. That's because it's a longer weekend, they could be here. You know, Memorial Day is designed as a remembrance and an honoring of those who died in the service of this country. And in that way, it's analogous to the Lord's Supper, which is a remembrance and an honoring of one who died for his people. I think that's as far as we want to draw that analogy, but let me just encourage you to notice that remembering and honoring Christ is the purpose of the Lord's Supper for us. For the disciples, it may have had a slightly different purpose, meaning they were sitting there with him at meal. And so for them, they were encountering Christ alive in bodily form next to them at the dinner table. And that's where our passage brings us here. And as we look at this, I want you to note the context. Mark chapter 14 is about death. You may not have noticed that. Let me show you. Mark chapter 14 begins in verse 1. It says, the scribes and Pharisees were seeking how to arrest by stealth and kill him. In the next section, Christ is anointed by a woman, and it says, And Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You see the theme of death running here. In fact, the next section, Judas betrays him, essentially a contract hire. Then we have the Passover with the disciples. Well, what is the Passover? The Passover is a celebration of the night of the plague of death of the firstborn. And so here they are gathered for this celebration of the Passover, in which death was to pass over the homes. Even after our passage that we're reading here, 
We see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says in verse 34, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And the chapter ends actually with Jesus being arrested and Peter denying him. Peter denying him as if he was dead. So the entire chapter is covering this aspect of death. You may wonder, well, the sermon title says, The Joyful Fulfillment of the Covenant. How is it that we're talking about joyful fulfillment in a chapter about death? And I would submit to you, think about your neighbors, think about your friends. How do they think of death? Do people sing joyful songs about death? No, our society rejects death as being bad, and certainly it is. It's a result of the fall. But here we have a chapter that brings to mind a death that is joyful. And that's what we want to focus on here. And let me ask you this question. How do you see the Lord's Supper? What do you think of when you think of the Lord's Supper? Are you thinking of joyful thoughts? Are you thinking of death? Do you see it as a ritualistic activity that we do occasionally? Or are you seeing it as fellowship, as fulfillment? Well, I'd suggest to you that this passage here is going to separate out into three themes. The covenant is represented here. The covenant is sealed here. And the covenant is applied here. So let's, let's work our way through the passage and see how the covenant is represented, sealed, and applied. For what purpose? That Christ gives us the Lord's Supper so that we may receive the sign, seal, and joyful application of the covenant fulfilled by him. So let's take a look. Verse 22 says, And as they were eating... Again, they were fellowshipping together. This was a meal together the sort of meal that families take. It was a holiday meal, the Passover, and they're enjoying it together. And notice that Jesus takes the bread, and it says, took the bread, and after blessing it. Again, he's carrying out a somewhat ritualistic activity. We do certain things. There are certain things that you do for family gatherings. For Thanksgiving, you have certain... uh, activities that you participate in. Perhaps there's a certain time which you turn off the, the football game to start the meal or something. There's certain steps you go through. And, that, and Jesus is working through the Passover meal with his disciples, celebrating God's blessing on his people. Well, if this is the covenant represented, how is he representing it? Well, he's breaking the bread. Now, this would bring to mind a question of, why does Jesus break bread as a representation of a covenant? Why not just explain it to them? Why not just tell them? Why do we need a visual representation? Why do people need to see a covenant? Well, I think precisely because the covenant is both tangible and intangible. Think of a wedding ring. A wedding ring is not a marriage, but it represents a marriage. Now, the marriage itself is quite real. There are two people living together. It's a quite tangible uh, reality, and yet it's also intangible. There's a relationship among them that isn't always seen, and the, the wedding ring provides an opportunity for others to see that relationship. 
And that's what the covenant is. God's covenant with his people is both tangible, he really is with his people, but it's also intangible to some degree. It's invisible, it's a spiritual relationship. And so involving a, a, a representation is helpful. We, we read from the Catechism about the Lord's Supper. Let me read to you question number 92. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs. So again, something that you can touch, something you can see, something you can hear. You can hear the crunching of bread when it's broken. You can smell the bread. You can taste the bread. These are sensible signs. They affect your senses. By sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Think about it this way. Uh, you may, like, like I do, love going to the birthday party of a one-year-old. Birthday parties for one-year-olds are special because you give them chocolate cake, and they have not mastered the use of utensils yet, and you set before them a chocolate cake and they then tear into it. And there's chocolate all over their face and all over their hands. Talk about sensible signs. There's chocolate everywhere. Well, that's the child's first birthday. But I bet this. I bet when that child was born, after the mother went through 12 hours of labor or whatever, she did not immediately get on the phone or the husband get on the phone and call up the parents, the grandparents, and say, guess what? We just instituted a sign we just instituted a first birthday. So a year from now, come by our house and you can watch the chocolate cake. No. The celebration was in the actual life of the child. The celebration was in the birthing. It's true that the birthday was instituted by the birth of the child on that day, and it's wonderful that we celebrate it. And the same is true of a wedding. A wedding is not a marriage. It's when the marriage comes together. But you're not celebrating the anniversary as if the, we- the marriage is the a- series of anniversaries. By the way, today is my parents' 51st wedding anniversary. Let me clarify that. My father and stepmother's 51st wedding anniversary. That's pretty impressive for a second marriage. But their marriage is not about a series of 51 incidents. But those anniversaries are special. And those birthdays are special because of what they actually represent. It's a sensible sign of a reality. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He chooses a context of fellowship. Fellowship and remembrance. See, the Passover, what what is a common phrase in the Jewish tradition? On Passover you say, I'll see you next year in Jerusalem. They're they're talking about the event. But what is that event representing? The exodus when God redeemed his people from death, from the death of the firstborn. And so Jesus has chosen this context of fellowship. Jesus has also chosen a covenantal representation. Where do we read about bread and wine? Well, in Genesis 14, we have Abram meeting with Melchizedek, and they sit down and they have bread and wine, and it represents a covenantal relationship. Throughout Scripture, we find the use of, of uh, bread and wine. In fact, what we find in uh, Exodus 24 is Moses taking the wine and sprinkling it on the people. 
there's a sacrifice, and he takes half of the wine and sprinkles it on the people. You all are probably grateful that the Lord's Supper is a little bit different in how we celebrate it. You just drink the wine. But he threw it on the people as a sign and seal of a covenant. So do you see, Jesus has chosen a fellowship activity and a covenantal activity. And he's done this for you. It's a real event with his disciples, but he's chosen this for you. He's chosen covenantal imagery. He's chosen, for example, the cutting of a covenant. You know, the circumcision was called, is referred to in Scripture as the covenant. Well, the the circumcision wasn't the covenant, but it represents the covenant, so we can call it the covenant. Think about a contract that you have with somebody. You want to buy a house, so you fill out a form, and you know, your real estate agent helps you, or your attorney helps you, and you, you sign a promissory note or something, and you say, oh, look, I just got a deed to my house. Here's my house. No, it's the contract that got you the house. It, when, the, when Congress passes a law, it's called a bill until it arrives on the president's desk. He may have tweeted the week before that he was going to approve it, but the lawyers around here will tell you, That didn't make it a law. What makes it a law is when he actually signs it and seals it. And so that activity, the the contract represents it like circumcision represents a relationship. And Jesus has shown that the covenant is being represented here through a very real activity. Contracts are real. They're quite useful. But they're just representing an agreement. They're representing a reality. So he's chosen these, this fellowship, this covenantal imagery. Notice he's, he's done it in a way that should remind us of some other covenants. You know, there was a covenant between God and Adam. And how was that covenant broken? Well, let me read to you from Genesis 3.6. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. And he ate. You see that language? The original covenant was broken through taking and eating. And Jesus now says, after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He's restored the covenant through the same imagery of taking and eating, only now he's giving, and then you take and eat. It says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. Well, now I have to take what's called an excursus. That's where we go off on a tangent for a second. Because there are some of you who maybe grew up Catholic, or maybe you have Catholic friends or neighbors, or maybe you're at least aware that in the Christian tradition, there have been those who understand the bread and the wine to be transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And if you read this language here, you might even have gotten there yourself. It says, take, this is my body. Verse 22, verse 24, this is my blood. And so you might say, well, let's, this is maybe an important excursus, an important sidebar. Why did he do that if it's not really his body and blood? I would say a couple of things to you. Let me just note one, which I think is a little 
humorous, if you will, who was sitting there with him? It was Jesus and 12 disciples. And one of them was named Thomas. How do you think Thomas would have responded here when Jesus says, this is my body? I'm thinking doubting Thomas would say, wait, hold on a second. If that's your body, what is this? See, it wouldn't have made sense to them. And it shouldn't make sense to us now. When I first heard about transubstantiation, a friend of mine was Catholic, and I was like, what in the world? That sounds like magic or something. What do you mean it transforms into his body and bread? That just sounds magical. And I rejected it on grounds of it sounding like magic. Well, miracles sound like magic in some ways, and God performs miracles, so we can't simply reject it on the grounds that it sounds too magical to be real. Let me take you back to Genesis 15 for a moment. Genesis 15, it's a great passage of Scripture. God has just made promises to Abraham, Abram, and he says, let me cut a covenant with you. And in the ancient Near East, how do they cut covenants? They took animals, they cut them in half, and they walked between them. So he cuts three mammals and two birds in half. Now think about that imagery. Blood is just spilled everywhere. And then there's a smoking pot, an urn, that goes through the, between the two cut halves of each animal. And that's God passing through. Because when the covenant was cut, what it meant was, I promise this, and if I don't fulfill it, I'm as good as dead as these bodies, as these carcasses. That's the imagery that Jesus is using here. When he breaks the bread, he's invoking this image. When he says, this is my body, he's emphasizing my body. In other words, when you think of the covenant people, when you 12 disciples who are Jewish, or you people who've all been educated on Scripture, when you see this broken bread, know this that that covenant between God and his people was sealed by the promise of his fulfilling it because this is his body broken for you. It's a sealing of the covenant. It's a clear sealing of the covenant. By the way, some of you may have participated in intinction where you take the bread and dip it into the wine and then eat it. I don't see how that's tenable based on this. If we're thinking of the covenant and cut carcasses, the blood is all spilled out. The whole purpose is to represent that the blood has left the bodies. And so it's two separate signs. We'll talk about the blood in a minute, but again, I don't see how you can have the wine and the the body, the blood and the body coming back together as part of the sign. But back to transubstantiation, Jesus is not saying, I just transformed my body into this bread for you, 12 men. No, he's saying, when you think of the covenant, it's broken. And by the way, how is the covenant to be fulfilled? Someone will have to give his life on your behalf. See, it's your sin that got him there. I said the chapter is all about death. He's talking to his disciples about their death being redeemed by his death. This is what he's telling you. The body broken, the blood poured out. Why? In consideration of 
your deserving death, he will die. And in that sense, he's made a promise to the twelve that in the next couple of days, he will in fact give his body and his blood, and they will be poured out. But right now, he's inaugurating the covenant. So you see, it is an institution of the Lord's Supper. In fact, my ESV translation says, institution of the Lord's Supper, as the little header for this passage. But it's not only the institution of the Lord's Supper. It is also the inauguration, the actual fulfillment of him saying, I will lay down my life for these people. I will lay down my life for you. This is my body. This is my blood. Okay, so... By the way, you, some of you be aware that in Latin, um, the term for, um, for, uh, for the body is hocus corpus, which is where we get the phrase hocus pocus, back to magical. I do think that this is a little bit too magical for our tastes, but I will emphasize to you, when your Catholic friends ask you why you do not recognize that this is the transformation of Jesus' body and bread, you say, because on the night he instituted it, he didn't transform his body into that. He gave his life. He gave his life. And it wasn't in the bread and the wine. But it's a sensible sign, and it adequately represents it. Well, let's talk about the covenant sealed. See, this commits loyalty on pain of death. Why do we need a covenant to be sealed? Why do you need a covenant to be sealed? I mean, it's a covenant. Well, think of it as a promise. He declares the blood of the covenant, my blood, Christ as the redeemer, fulfiller, poured out. He wants to make sure you understand this is actually the fulfillment of the covenant. Someone must die for your sins. And he's sealing it with his body. What is a covenant, by the way? A common phrase for the covenant is it's a uh, bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Now, we could get into a whole discussion of that, but just notice it's a bond in blood, it's a promise, and it's so- sovereignly administered, meaning the person can fulfill it because they are sovereign. They have control. And he's made this blood oath, this bond. We could go back to Genesis 15 or Jeremiah 34 and find the exact same language. Promise of fulfillment, we find in Genesis 9. And he's using the fruit of the vine. Now, why is he using the fruit of the vine? The passage says here, this is my, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. Well, some of you maybe have grown watermelons. Watermelons are fruit of the vine. You've probably grown, I don't know, tomatoes. They're a little bit viney, a little bit, when they get too tall and fall over. What sort of fruit might he be talking about? Well, he's not talking about V8. He's talking about the notion of the Passover wine. What we find in Scripture, fruit of the vine almost always refers to uh, wine, but also, if you look back in the Talmud and other Jewish writings, the phrase fruit of the vine means the cup of the Passover. And here he's specifically talking about the third Passover cup. And he says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the... Oh, I'm sorry. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They've just had the third cup of the Passover Seder. 
Passover dinner. The fourth cup is the final cup of the Passover, and he's saying the memory of the Passover, the the celebration of Passover for me ends here and now. And there will not be a final celebration by Jesus until glory, until the kingdom has been established in glory. So he's noting that the Passover now ceases for him and therefore logically for the disciples, which is why we've replaced it and have the Lord's Supper. He's talking about sacrificial blood. I already mentioned Exodus 24, where Moses sprinkles the blood on the people. Hebrews 9, what we find is that blood is required for the remission of sins. And he's talking about sacrificial blood. You see, it's the fulfillment of previously promised new covenant. If we went to Jeremiah 31, what we'd find is that the people were expecting or being uh, prophesied a new covenant, which would be established for them. And he's using that language. O. Palmer Robertson says this, At that crucial moment, Jesus communicates by word and deed that the distribution of the cup representing his blood is to be understood as the inauguration ceremony. I could use a little fruit of the vine right now. Um, Of the new covenant, no longer is the covenant a promise to be anticipated. It is a reality to be observed. And that's what's so special about the Lord's Supper. We don't just simply celebrate it periodically, as we're going to do next week, but it's celebrating a reality that is daily and present right this second. Jesus actually fulfilled the covenant. And so each day you can celebrate his fulfilling of that covenant. Now let's look at the covenant applied. What what is the response of these disciples? Verse 26 says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mountain of Olives. By the way, the Mountain of Olives to this day, for thousands of years, is a huge graveyard. There are graves all over the mountain, except where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And they're heading out to this mountain of death, if you will, that represents death. It's also, by the way, the place where David had been uh, pursued by Absalom. So you notice that there's the valid king heading out to the Mount of Olives, basically Uh, with an invalid king after him. And so you see, as Jesus heads out to the mountain, he's representing that valid king who's in exile for a moment. And they sang a song. What did they sing? Almost definitely, they sang Psalm 118. It doesn't tell us they sang Psalm 118. And in fact, it's a bit of a walk to the mountain, so they may have sung some other hymns as well. But on Passover, the Jews sing the Hillal Psalms, and this, 118, is the last of those, and that's what they would have been singing. It's a very joyous psalm. Let me read a couple of lines from it. You're probably familiar with this psalm. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I, th- um, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Here's, here's a line you may re- recognize. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's what the disciples were singing. Here's a line that you may not remember. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus and his disciples are singing the song, the joyful song of a sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice for them. 
By the way, they may have also been singing Jeremiah 31. If you look, Jeremiah 31 and following is a long uh, song, and it includes the lines from 118, Psalm 118. And they probably were singing that along. So let me ask you this. Did the disciples get it? Did they understand? Did they understand the Lord's Supper? The answer has to be yes and no. Yes, of course, they understood Jesus was with them, and he was breaking some bread, and he was instituting something to do in remembrance of him. They got all that. And they knew that he was the fulfillment, because he said, this is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant. But I don't think they fully got it, right? And what's the proof of that is that a few hours later, Peter would be denying him. Just a few hours later. So they got it, to some degree, but that's the way our Lord's Supper is for us. We experience it, and we understand it, and as we mature, we gain it more and more. But the number one thing they got was to respond with joy. They went out singing a joyful hymn, and that's how we should understand it. Our number one response should be to sing a joyful hymn. So now, let's talk about how do we apply this. How do we apply this? I can, I can think of five ways. I think that the passage tells us these five ways. To see Christ in the Lord's Supper. See Christ in the Lord's Supper. Not just his body, but him giving himself for you, pouring out his blood for you. When you take the Lord's Supper, do you see Christ in it? These are to be sensible signs. You are to see him. Do you see Christ giving his life for you, for your sin? By the way, question 97 of the Catechism says, what is required for the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And in the middle of that answer to that, it says that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body. See him in it. Okay, so see Christ in it. See the covenant. You know, we don't always think about the covenant. See the covenant here in the Lord's Supper. It's tempting to think of the Lord's Supper in a very Zwinglian manner. By the way, it's not clear that Zwingli actually held to what he's said to held to, but a Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper is that we simply do it in remembrance. It's just a memory. Don't see it as just a memory, please. The covenant was fulfilled for you. It's fulfilled. It's real. It's not just a memory. He is interceding for you right now in heaven. It's a real depiction of the covenant. In God's covenant of redemption, Jesus fulfilled with his atoning sacrifice. Adam broke that covenant. God's people broke the covenant. You broke the covenant. Take, eat. It's his body broken for you. See, the grace, the grace in the Lord's Supper. You see, Jesus was giving them his body. He was giving it to them. He says, take. In fact, that's the only imperative in this passage. The only thing that says what you have to do is the take. He's laid it all out for you. He's given his life for you. Take. No one deserves to be redeemed, but Christ has paid the price. So I say to you, it's a gift. Take. Take. 
Do you see it? Fourthly, see the joy. See the joy in the Lord's Supper. I mean, let's face it, death is sad. This world was not designed for death. Death is sad. It's the wages of sin. The need of redemption is sad. But fulfillment of that redemption is joyful. Are there people you know who don't know the Lord's Supper? Meaning they don't take it? Or when they do, they don't know what it means? Please. They need to hear these words too. They need to hear take. There's joy to be had in the Lord's Supper. And your joy, representing Christ to others, is what will bring others to his table. Share with them that joy so they may receive the fellowship. And that's really the fifth one. See the fellowship. It's Christ sitting down with his people. They received it together. They didn't fully understand it all. But they rejoiced together and went out together to carry on a mission for the kingdom. If you've seen the true joy of the Lord's Supper, of Christ's covenant to redeem, then let your joy drive you to going out and sharing, bringing others to fellowship. They are dying. Your friends are dying. And they know it. They're fighting death. They're feeling death. Go out to them. Rejoice in the sacrificial death of the one who died for many. It says he poured out his life for many. Go to others and say, if for many, then why not for you? If for many, why not for you? Let me close with this. He's promised not to drink the Passover wine again until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. Invite others to be part of that celebration before that final celebration that we read about in Revelation. Christ gives the Lord's Supper for us to receive the sign, seal, and joyful application of the covenant fulfilled by him. You have seen the covenant represented and sealed. So I exhort you. Apply joyfully what you have seen. There are people around you dying. See his body broken for you, his blood poured out. Let's pray. Oh, great Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your institution of the Lord's Supper. But not just that. Thank you for actually fulfilling the covenant for us. We know that it would be our death that's required of our sin. But we are grateful, Lord, that you were willing to die for us. Lord, we understand that these signs and seals are spiritual and hard to grasp, but we ask, Lord, this coming Sunday, as we worship you, let us receive this sign, receive this seal. Let us be joyful and and apply it, and let us do that through your Spirit. We pray this in your Son's holy and precious name. Amen.